I'm Adam McGee. And I'm Andrew Snyder. And you're listening to Captured in Celluloid. Andrew, how are you doing? I'm feeling good, Adam. I'm I'm glad to be back talking with you. You know, it, it seems like every week is uh all the all the roads we have to walk are winding to get back to doing a podcast with one another, but we're back, we're ready to go. We weren't gone for too long this time, and we both remembered how to do the introduction. So that's a that's a good sign. That is a good sign. Uh, it really is. Just to navigate from week to week, from podcast to podcast, is something that is kind of incredible. New challenges come up, unforeseen challenges. And then even when you think about what we talked about last week, like, and then No Time to Die moves, the cinema that I go to most often is a Cineworld cinema, which, I mean, people who are listening to this are probably aware that Cineworld and Regal in the US have just closed all of their theaters for the foreseeable future so that conversation we had at the front end of last week yeah um life comes at you pretty fast andrew is really the point here it really does we weren't intending on speaking things into existence with that podcast uh so i don't i don't give us any responsibility for that i think we can sleep at night um but the world is changing into the world we imagined, and that's very frightening. Among yeah. other things happening, especially <laughs> in my country. Yeah, that's very true. On this particular episode, though, we have something very different to talk about. We are going to talk about the films of Richard Ayoade. I don't know how many, if any, of you listening will know who Richard Ayoade is. Maybe you do. I mean, as an actor, he's popped up in some things. Certainly more kind of recognizable or familiar to people on my side of the Atlantic Ocean, I'd say. But this came about because we finished the last episode and we didn't commit to what was going to come next. And then after that, we talked and it was kind of a case of what can we what can we do that gives something fun, interesting to talk about, something new, something different for Andrew, new and different for a lot of people, I would imagine, and yet not too strenuous. And I had to think, and this was the name that came to mind, Richard Ayoade is a filmmaker with two movies that he's directed to his name, both quite a while ago now. I mean, his first film, the 10th anniversary when it premiered at TIFF, is just gone. And that's Submarine, and three years later, he released a double. I guess we'll get into both of those movies specifically, and we'll get into... I guess some of the details as to why he has two films and maybe why there's a seven year gap and there hasn't been another one since, but we'll begin, I guess, right at the top. I'm right with the the more general part of this. So you didn't really know who Richard Iowati was other than a vague awareness of one of his movies. Am I right in saying that when I brought him up last week? A vague awareness of one of his movies without knowing he was the one that directed it. Right. If, if that makes sense, like I knew of the movie and I could I could picture the we'll call it the poster <laughs> um, instantly, Jesse Eisenberg's face. Um, but I didn't I didn't know who he was. It's it's somebody that when I dug a little deeper, I recognized the face. Adam, I don't know if you have the habit like I do. You probably don't because you're a normal functioning human being. Sometimes when you can't sleep late at night, you'll go down YouTube rabbit holes, and maybe watch uh, interviews of of celebrities and the, uh, a lot of times things will just autoplay and i think i'm remembering seeing him on an episode of graham norton or something something like oh, that that's, that's definitely possible so that's like the only 
recognition I had of him a- until this exercise. And, you know, that, that's why these exercises are good, Adam. You expose me to so many new things and, and make me a more well-rounded human being. But after after watching these two films, I think I, I was blown away that he only has two films because, I, I mean, the accomplishment that he makes with his first film and then a follow-up, I mean, having a two-film run where you're two for two and then just going away from filmmaking is is kind of crazy to me yeah and i i will will get to it but i don't think it's entirely uh kind of his decision or necessarily the path he has he would have wanted to take if he had all options afforded to him but this is kind of the reality of the the world of 21st century cinema particularly independent film and then i mean independent film outside the u.s and he with his name and with his kind of some of the recognition he built up so he's a figure who has a kind of strong background in kind of cult tv comedy in the uk would be the best way i could put it maybe again some people may be familiar with the likes of garp Rengi's dark place which is phenomenal and you know i would highly recommend it incredibly strange and weird and very much Richard Ayoade. If you watch these two movies and then you're like, I like that. I want more of that. This is that kind of turned up to 11. And uh, The Mighty Boosh might be even more well known. And these these shows were kind of big deals, again, in a cult sense, in a relative sense. Not like everyone was sitting down to, to watch these in the UK or in Ireland. But they were shows that would have had kind of loyal and sizable followings. And sizable followings that would have grown in the years after they went off air. Garth Margie's Dark Place was, I think, 2004. It was a one one season and done thing. The Mighty Boosh might have run for three or four years, but that would have been again, pre-2010, pre-kind of submarine and I already moving into directing feature films. So that gave him some visibility. I mean, beyond that, he's someone who you don't really have comedy uh, panel shows in the US, do you? Um, I think not in the way that he would have been a part of over on your side of the Atlantic. Uh, the, the kind of thing that we have now are more of those um, on Comedy Central, which is a comedy station here. A bunch of comedians go and talk about internet videos. Right, yeah. No, not that kind of thing. It's It's funny because... Certainly, this is something that it's now it's now become dated, and there aren't quite as many of them as there used to be. But in the UK and also here in Ireland, like comedy panel shows are a big, big deal. Where you could have something news teamed. Have I got news for you? A long, long running BBC show, and uh, Mock the Week was another one where you'll get comedians and they'll go on and they'll kind of they'll just riff through the week's news, and it's kind of a mixture of stand up and kind of observations reflections all kind of very witty he would show up on those kind of programs eight out of ten cats is one that he would be on quite a lot and just over the years people would have become familiar with him from those kind of appearances and there's a an annual kind of comedy quiz that always broadcasts on new year's eve on channel four called the big fat quiz of the year he is like an ever-present on that with Noel Fielding. I don't know if you're familiar with Noel Fielding. Noel Fielding was in The Mighty Boosh. So this is kind of where 
his roots come from. And to kind of expand out from that and some of the people who listeners might be aware of if they're not aware of him, like that same kind of group of people who are involved in things like Art Marenghi and in the Mighty Boosh included Paul King, who has gone on to very, very successfully direct the Paddington movies. Noel Fielding was someone who was involved in it too. There was a film I really liked, and I feel like I might have somehow recommended it at some point on our previous podcast. It's a very strange, very British film that I don't know if the humor would necessarily always land, but I, I'm almost certain it got a Netflix release outside of the UK. It's called Mindhorn. It's a weird movie, but bringing it up because Julian Barrett, Julian Barrett and I think it's Simon Farnaby, two people in that who also would be in that circle. Richard Iwadi also worked with someone that I think people definitely will be familiar with, John Oliver, quite a lot in his early days and as kind of a comic on the rise and in that kind of world. So there's kind of a whole group of people that he's kind of crossed with. And then for me, when I first became aware of him, I think even predating, I wasn't necessarily, I was maybe a little young at the time. I wasn't necessarily into any of his comedy when it first aired or any of the comedy shows that he was involved in. Uh, but what I was into was, was Arctic Monkeys, like fanatically into Arctic Monkeys. And he kind of connected with them, became someone who was very regularly seen around the band and who directed not just music videos, but also um, what I think is still their only live concert film, which is Arctic Monkeys Live at the Apollo. He directed that along with the videos for Forest and Adolescent, Cornerstone, and Crying Lightning, I believe. And that was really kind of, he had done some directing on the likes of Garp Marenghi. He branched out into music videos. And then Submarine comes along. You've probably seen those Arctic Monkeys videos, right? It's another thing where you will have seen some of his stuff or maybe he had some awareness without having any idea of knowing who it was. Yeah, and I would have, digging deeper, I would have seen his uh, Vampire Weekend videos as well. And then an episode of Community that he directed, which yeah. was, was basically a My Dinner with Andre kind of homage. I don't remember. I don't remember that episode and I will definitely have watched it at some point. But even in researching for this, it seems to have been incredibly well received and one of the kind of the core fan favorite episodes of Community's entire run. So that's pretty impressive, too. Yeah, I mean, that was a show that really became famous for its high concept episodes and steering into pop culture. And that episode, I, I do remember it. It was uh, Abed's, you know, how he would always like to do these delusional things that puts him like into mm -hmm. a movie it was really really steered into that um and i think it was probably the most well-crafted version of that type of high concept episode that they became famous for yeah and i mean before getting into the two films themselves he has also acted in quite a few things although not necessarily a whole lot that's very good he was in the watch the ben stiller comedy did you see the watch I did not see The Watch. I did not see The Watch either. The Watch is important here because he struck up a relationship with Ben Stiller around this time, which led to Ben Stiller being uh, executive producer on Submarine and kind of getting it out in front of audiences, certainly outside of the UK, attaching his name to it was a big deal. 
and that's kind of looked at in its own right is a big help. He's had a lot of work in in animated films over the years since. I think the most notable uh, feature film acting role that he's been in by a long way is in The Souvenir, which I don't think you saw, Joanna Hogg's film from last year. Nope, uh, that did not not make it in front of my face. You should watch The Souvenir. Uh, The Souvenir Part 2 was supposed to come this year, but who knows when and how that will arrive. But a really spectacular film that he is phenomenally good in. He is really, really good. And at this point, it's probably worth kind of pointing out that he is incredibly smart. He is one of the kind of driest, wittiest people that really you could find on TV. What am I trying to say, Andrew? I was trying to say he's a very particular kind of voice. And it comes true in his films. There's a very well-defined tone to his movies. And that really... If you see any interviews of him, if you see any appearances he's done, if you see something like a Travel Man, a travel show he hosted, which I love, where he'd go to different cities around the world for 48 hours with like famous actors or comedians and things like this, it all comes true. And part of that, it's important to know that just because that is there in his movies. And whether you see the movies first and then you become more aware of him, it's very much relevant. He's also written multiple books, I believe three books about film, which are all very knowing and pretty high concept in how they're constructed. One is called Iowadi on Iowadi. I own it. It is kind of imagining himself as a master filmmaker, and it is him interviewing himself about his works and about all sorts of stuff. It's a very strange but very amusing book. So... That's the kind of the introduction to who is Richard Iowadi. As for his movies, so Submarine comes along in 2010. Most people think of themselves as individuals, that there's no one on the planet like them. This thought motivates them to get out of bed, eat food, and walk around like nothing's wrong. My name is Oliver Tate. I suppose it's a bit of an affectation, but I often wish there was a film crew following my every move. So I made a documentary about a prominent thinker who struggled with unspeakable loss. I've tried smoking a pipe, flipping coins, I've even had a brief art phase, but nothing stuck. Your mother informs me that you have a girlfriend. Come here. Once, I ripped my vest off in front of a woman. It produced a very atavistic response to us and a wonderful evening of lovemaking. You know, you're a serial killer. I'm exciting and delicious. are probably red. They look fine. No, well, maybe they don't go red when I cry then. Le monde entier. I'll 
really rude to leave the film before it's finished. Me too. To the filmmakers. How are they gonna know? They just do. How? They do. As I mentioned, I think its its premiere was a TIFF, which is right around this time of year, 10 years ago. I was a little bit shaken up to realize this movie is 10 years old. To me, I would put this as right around the time where my own interest and engagement with film was taking on taking on kind of an extra level or an extra dimension. Not to overstate that, but if it's kind of if it's a couple of years, two, three years before this, where I started to really broaden what I was watching, this is the point where I started to go and see something like this, which by no means the smallest movie, but still a kind of quirky independent film in a theater. And it was a movie that when I first saw it, I loved it. I've loved it ever since. I will say I hadn't watched this or actually his follow-up film in the time since. So I just went in knowing I loved them, knowing I thought they were really good, but not quite sure what they'd come out like, kind of through the lens that maybe I now look at movies from. But they both really held up and then some for me. What were your impressions? We'll start with Submarine, with his first movie, and is the first one you watched. I don't know what exactly you were expecting going into this, if you were expecting anything, if you had any sense of what a Richard Ayoade film might look like. But how did you kind of find Submarine and what was your kind of key takeaway when you finished watching it? I had no expectations because I didn't have any of that familiarity with his work or that I knew of at the time. There's a th something about a coming of age styled story that can seem overdone or like we've been here before. And I think what makes these types of movies work when they do work well is there is that same general theme and relatability that anyone that's been 15 coming into a movie can kind of recognize themselves on screen to a degree. But it's what really makes it work is that hyper-focused specificity, especially on character and setting. And that's what I think really stood out to me. Obviously, it's a very stylish film, and he's a very adept director when it comes to that but that's not something that would necessarily stand out to me most i think there's just something a little off about the world that's built and there's this a, a weirdness a warmth and also a little bit of a cynicism to everything that goes on that just makes it feel like a much more elevated version of this type of movie i mean the they're very different movies and two different filmmakers with their own styles, but it's something that I felt like when I watched Lady Bird as well. It's it's just a, a very hyper-focused specificity on a specific type of person living in his uh, his weird little offbeat life. I mean, it, it's got the the things that we come to know, like this, he's a kid that maybe isn't well-liked or, or popular in school, and then what I think so interesting is the moments we see him when he's alone, when we just see how much of a weirdo he is. And, and he is very weird. I think that's worth pointing out. Cause you're right. There's, it is a trope of coming of age to have someone who isn't the most popular kid at school. I don't feel like they're generally as weird as this though, as Oliver Tate is in submarine. Right. And he doesn't deserve to, to be, uh, beat up or looked down upon, but to a degree he's earning it through the weirdness but it every character in the film that we spend a lot of time with they become endearing after a while and their weirdness and their quirks uh become something that like you become fond of while you're watching it it's it's 
it was a very comforting experience watching this movie, even in some of the uh, the awkward or the dark moments. And there's just a humor that's laced throughout that always shines through no matter what. The movie to me, and maybe part of it is, in my memory and I guess in like in a, a filmmaker and films that have become more dear to me probably since I first saw Submarine, the thing that I had in my mind was this Wes Anderson comparison. And I think there is something quite obvious about that, about the frame, about the kind of characters, about how the movie kind of plays out, how its story progresses. The way that it, it both seems like really airy and light and also has this really kind of acerbic and bitter undertone, there's something about that that I think has just become shorthand for Wes Anderson, as well as this kind of dialogue, as well as these kind of characters. But when I actually came to to watch it for this, I was like, sure, that's there. And the film that first came to mind is like very early on when you get to school stuff, you're like, this is kind of like Rushmore. You can see bits of Rushmore in this. But the more I went on, the more I realized that the influences are like really, you know, the film is wearing its influences on its sleeve. And they're influences that when I first watched it, I wouldn't have had a reference point for. I wouldn't have been able to reach for them. But it's kind of interesting how Iowati mixes all of that together. So first thing I'll give, I watched a Q&A that he gave around the time of the film's release. I won't ask you to guess these two movies because that's the kind of impossible question I usually do that doesn't lead to good podcasting. But what I will say is if I was to ask you to guess, you wouldn't come close to guessing the two movies that Iowati says were kind of at the forefront of his mind as what am I drawing from? What is this movie? And yet when I heard them, they made complete sense to me. So the two films that he laid out were Terrence Malick's Badlands and Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver. Funnily enough, two of my absolute all-time favorite movies, both without a doubt in my 10 favorite films of all time. But I would never have just put my finger on that right away. And yet hearing that it's kind of easy to spot them. I think it's interesting for putting into context. Okay. What is this film? So first of all, Badlands. You've seen Badlands? Oh, no. Okay. Um, I can't believe it. <laughs> I but thought you, you had, it, Adam, but you can believe it because of I, you're talking things. Oh, there's some things I expect that you have seen, but look, Badlands is a Bonnie and Clyde esque tale set in the Badlands of Montana. It's actually it's based on Charles Starkweather and I want to say it's Carol and Fugat or something. It's a real-life killing spree it's based on. Two love-struck teenagers, well, one teenager, one slightly older, who basically go on the run. In the style of Malick films, it's very much this kind of airy, kind of roomy exploration of their relationship, of youth, and there's a lot packed in there beyond just the A to B to C of plot. And what the film is really about. And you know at its core. It is a coming of age story. 
it's a pretty dark one. It's not very conventional, but there's a coming of age and certainly kind of a first love element to that, which very much carries over and is present in Submarine. The other point of reference, Taxi Driver, I mean, that one, I think you'll, you'll know that one. I know you've seen Taxi Driver. Yes, I have seen Taxi Driver. Can you guess why he's he cites Taxi Driver as a movie he was thinking of? You've already kind of hit it on the head, so maybe I should just give you credit rather than put you under pressure. What kind of credit are you going to give me? Well, it's it's about the interiority of the character. It's about the character's weird, and when we see him on his own and we hear him express his own thoughts, a lot of that comes out in voiceover. But it is, it's the kind of the Travis Bickle's diary element of Taxi Driver, mm. where you're you're really getting into the psychology of the character, and it's it's giving you a greater insight into just, you know, I guess the thing in both movies, um, not everyone watches Taxi Driver this way, but this is how you were kind of, this is how Taxi Driver was attended. You're supposed to not just inherently trust everything Travis Bickle says. Um, in his voiceover, in his times away from other characters, because you can also see his actions. And it just, it adds an extra layer, an extra dimension to his character, because sure, you're getting the character's interior thoughts but you're also getting to have a god's eye view of it where you're you're getting a sampling of that but you're also seeing how he interacts with others and you're able to put the full picture together for yourself i think that happens really nicely in submarine and submarine is very funny like it's the coming of age it's not heavy it is comedic largely and a lot of the humor comes from that and just kind of getting a a better sense of the the protagonist Oliver Tate, who's played by Craig Roberts, getting a better sense of how his character processes things, and then hearing what comes out of his mouth. And I think it's it's particularly interesting in a coming of age movie, and in one that's well executed like this, because there is something about like a 15, 16 year old trying to work through their own thoughts and then trying to battle against themselves in their day to day social interactions that I think is really kind of intelligently and pretty accurately handled in this movie yeah i think there's some recognition there that he's intelligent enough to understand that if he is himself to everyone uh that won't go well for him which is interesting like if you think about the beginning of the film when he's basically steering into something that he doesn't actually believe in which would be to be a bully just to get a girl to be interested in him that's there's a there's a strategic nature to that kind of decision making that reflects someone that has both emotional intelligence and regular intelligence but also is 15 years old and (laughs) at that point in your life what's more important being a good person or getting a girl to like you and in the decision he he makes that the choice to do that and it works out for him so, uh, yeah, I don't know where I was going with that. Uh, he did he, this movie did not Adam correct me if I'm wrong inspire any assassination attempts on a sitting president. Um, I don't believe so. No, I mean the other thing when I talk about influences and it's I think it's really important again because it's just kind of like well what makes this different? And for anyone who's maybe listening and I mean we haven't got too much into we haven't given any kind of plot outline. I don't think there's a whole lot to outline in terms of the broad stroke of it and what's most important to know is 
what you let off with, which is this is, you know, unpopular guy at school, um, falls in love with a classmate, basically trying to make that work. And then you're dropped into the life of a 15 year old. And yeah, his life is maybe a little bit different. And maybe the way he viewed things feeds into that. But there is no kind of big plot here. You know, there's, there isn't, there isn't something that we need to kind of sketch out to sell this. And I think part of, and this is, we've talked about this for coming of age before, like these movies are instantly relatable to everyone. Like on the one hand, what struck me watching this again was just how British it was. And particularly with its sense of humor, it's really dry and sarcastic. I don't, did you find it to be very British? I did. Um, and that's something that hasn't been an issue for me with with well, films. I think I, I don't think it is a barrier in this case anyway, because there are beats of the story that are familiar too, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think it would be a barrier of entry for anyone, not just someone that, you know, kind of responds to that type of humor. The The other thing, though, because, OK, so you've got this very British movie and there's kind of strokes of Wes Anderson the director is openly citing the likes of Taxi Driver and Badlands as influences. But the thing that really drives it forward, and I think this is something that even people who aren't necessarily familiar with these movies, haven't watched them, they'll be aware of parodies of this, and you'll almost be able to see that line come true in Submarine, and that's it's so heavily indebted to the French New Wave, it's kind of unbelievable. And in a way, that's not just kind of overwrought pastiche. Like there's something, there's a really clever repurposing of French New Wave filmmaking ideas and techniques brought to this movie that's set in a small village in like South Wales. But anyone who's, if you've seen any Jean-Luc Godard film, you'll kind of, you'll recognize the same editing patterns uh, throughout submarine you'll recognize the same kind of style of cinematography there's also a lot in the kind of just the tone the characters take and the way they speak and the way they view their lives that very much kind of fits that same mold um another film that i think is pretty obviously i, I haven't seen anything where he cited it but it just seems like incredibly apparent that it has to have been a major influence is the 400 blows the Francois Truffaut film, which is maybe the ultimate coming-of-age movie. Plenty of shots down right at the sea that in Sabrina evoke some kind of, some of the most famous shots in cinema in Francois, in Francois Truffaut's film. So there's kind of, there's a lot going on here. And why I'm bringing all of that up and hopefully not boring people who aren't as into movies as I am, is that all comes across that this is a filmmaker who has a lot of ideas. He's clearly like very cine literate. And yet he brings his own style, his own voice to the table too. And it doesn't come across as just this kind of mishmash or something that's kind of half-baked, like you kind of expect from a debut feature film. Like this isn't someone, sure he'd worked in TV, so he was experienced but in terms of kind of no long history of shorts even in working in tv it's not someone who had directed hundreds of episodes of television or anything close to that but yet i think one of the things that really struck me on a rewatch is just how accomplished this movie is 
Like, if you were to just show it to someone, they're not going to be like, oh, that's definitely someone's first movie. Oh, yeah. Completely agree. And it it's almost surprisingly good that this is his first movie. Because it could have easily, like you said... Now, while I was watching it, it probably didn't pop into my mind, but the Wes Anderson comparisons are, are apt, I'd say. And a, a first-time filmmaker really uh, leaning into uh, their influences, S- someone could have easily made a bad Wes Anderson knockoff. Not that that's who he was leaning on here, but this comes across as feeling something that's wholly unique and in one person's specific voice. And I think that carries across to his next movie and it, it'd be interesting to see how it it did over a uh, whole filmography to see as he keeps learning how to be a filmmaker how he improves i don't know how you improve upon something <laughs> this good this soon but i mean yeah, yeah that's 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 an interesting point because one of the i've been doing a lot more kind of trying to watch watch director's filmographies true recently and kind of go and find things that are early, sometimes their first films, even their shorts, and try to work my way through and get the complete picture of filmmakers I really, really kind of enjoy watching their movies and whose work I care about. And in doing that, it is kind of incredible. Just like master filmmakers that it takes them four movies to make a movie that looks anything like what you associate in the bigger picture as one of their movies. Like, two filmmakers I've done this with recently, and I'm still in the process of uh, big filmographies, are Brian De Palma and Pedro Almodovar. And I I can't think of too many filmmakers in the last 30 to 40 years who have, like, more pronounced, like, oh, that's what their movie looks like, and that's what its teams... That's what their teams are? Like, it's they are maybe the two prime examples of that. And you watch their early works, and sure, there's some signs there, but they're very faint. It's it's nothing that quite comes together. And I think you tend to find a lot of that with directors, that they will talk about, okay, you get your first opportunity, and there is an element of, okay, well, I love this movie, and I love that movie, and I've got this idea for my film, and I put it together, and it comes out like this. So I think in Ayoade's case, I mean, his first two films, in both cases, they come out much better than anyone can almost reasonably expect for that approach. They have incredible style. They also have a very distinct voice. His voice is there, even though you can pick up on what the influences are in both cases. And yet the thing is, you know, if he'd made another one, two, three movies in the time since the double came out in 2013 and where we are now, we may we may have ended up at a point where there was a, an evolution where something beca- became distinctly him. Where we have the, the comparison like we just brought out where we say, okay, there's a touch of Wes Anderson and Submarine, you know, where you could apply, oh, that's like a Richard Ayoade movie to someone else. And that is what's kind of interesting particularly in going back to a filmography that's like this. It's just two movies, two really, really well-made, very good movies that show all the potential, but, like, what are they? What are they as a whole? What could I What could I pin on him as his style? That's very difficult with the kind of the point his, his career as a director is at a present. Maybe that changes in the future. Maybe he makes more movies and expands and we get to see that kind of flesh out. But in spite of making two things that I think are really good, 
it's an interesting dynamic at play where you don't get to kind of pin down and be like, oh, this is what he is. Which, is that a bad thing either? I mean, people like me who love to categorize things, I think this is definitely something that people who love movies fall into the trap of trying to categorize everything. Uh, it's it's really one of the the big problems that movie culture faces generally is everyone has to label and categorize and only things that can be labeled or categorized get made and only things that can be labeled or categorized people go to see. But if after two movies, you're like, okay, Richard Ayoade's next project. What is the, what is the label or category you could put on them? It's, it's definitely not an easy one. Yeah. Even though I wouldn't say that I'm able to succinctly describe what his style is. One of the things that I think translates from both films is a knack for making bold decisions that actually work. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I'm i not the the style, direction, camera shot man, but like for, for one example, one thing that I think was a pretty big risk to take because it's something that can come across as forced or just feel out of place if the tone and the structure of the movie doesn't doesn't work is the the cutaway scenes where say it's a character reading a letter or um you're thinking of fourth wall with that too right right it's almost like the shot is oliver's mind just picturing looking at jordana or something like that Mm -hmm. and and that's something that was also i'll (laughs) funny i'll bring up greta gerwig again that's that was something that was in little women that similarly could have felt out of place but i thought really worked so it's just a he makes bold choices and they they usually work out even the tone especially in the double and just the the off kilter nature of the universe just the decision that this is what my world's going to be and i mean it all works for me which is pretty surprising given how these things can go wrong yeah the biggest decision with submarine is Something that, again, I'd probably seen it, say, three times before watching it today, but that was a long time ago. And when I watched it today, I was... The the thing that jumped out to me was, I was like, this is, this is the kind of movie that the characters in the film would want made about their life. And as I said, I watched the Q&A afterwards and Richard Iwadi distinctly said that. He said one of his aims was to make this film as if, if Oliver was making the film himself, what would it look like? And that informed the style, that informed the whole tone. It's like, what kind of film would he want this story to look like? And that's what kind of fed into this very French New Wave feel to the movie. But like that in its own right is a very bold choice because visually this is not like every low budget indie movie that comes out in the 2010s. Like it's not even close to that. One, it looks amazing. And both of these movies we're trying to talk about look amazing. They're both shot by a cinematographer by the name of Eric Wilson, who also shot Paddington 2, which as I mentioned, Paul King, a uh, longtime friend, collaborator, Richard Iotti, also looks amazing that movie. Uh, and he was a camera up on The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Have you seen Walter Mitty? I have not. That's a movie I'm, I need to watch again, but I might I might come out and, you know, stand harder than anyone on this planet would stand for that movie at some point. I, uh, I need to do another thing like I did last week where I told you the most recent thing I saw in theaters before the world shut down and tell you 
what I think I'm remembering this correctly. I was on a trip in Abu Dhabi and Dubai. Um, I think it was when Walter Mitty was in theaters and I wanted to see that, but I got outvoted and I saw frozen. So um, that's why I've never seen Walter Mitty. I don't, I really don't think many people saw it. I really, really like it. I think it's the best thing Ben Stiller has done. Certainly as a director, looks great too. A really bold, imaginative movie. And yeah, Eric Wilson, who was cinematographer on both of these Richard Ayoade films, was the camera operator on that. And that is undoubtedly not a coincidence because that came out a couple of years. That might have come out in between this. As I mentioned, Ben Stiller was a producer on this. So I'm guessing he went when it came to directing his own movie. Oh, that guy who shot the hell out of that movie. uh, I want him on a camera. And the style of the film is incredible and it does, it changes around, it changes around in form, it changes around in aspect ratio, there's some of it shot in Super 8, there's a really great line that I love, I wish I'd taken down the exact quote so I have it, but at some point Oliver references, like he's kind of wistfully thinking about past moments between him and Jordana and he's like, oh, it's instantly consigned to the Super 8 that is memory. And you get this Super 8 footage of it. And it, I'm like, yeah, there is that is kind of true. In your own mind, even, when you think back to something like years ago, particularly if I was thinking something as a child, like it just has it in, in your head even. It has some kind of sheen. It has a different kind of look like that. There might be grain on it, is what I'm saying, Andrew. Um, I just thought, oh, that's a, that's a really good choice for a movie. It's actually being vocalized. Like, this is... It's the kind of movie that, again, we invoked Wes Anderson, so it's probably worth pointing out. It will annoy some people. I would like to think not too many, but will be annoyed by just how smart the movie wants to be. I think it actually is smart, and it gets there. Um, It's very much kind of self-reflexive, but I I do think there will be a certain person who will be turned off by... Not the the intellectualism of the movie. It's not like there's really kind of complicated or advanced ideas at play, but how the movie itself is kind of viewing how it's interacting with that. Do you know what I mean? I think I do. I don't know if pretentious is the right word, but it's in... It's definitely a word that someone who doesn't like it would use. Right, and they would be wrong to say that. I will say, Adam, all of the Super 8 memories in my head of frolicking around a beach uh, with a a woman that says we're not allowed to hold hands or have emotions are sepia toned as well. So that's, that's, that's kind of what my film role looks like. Another another thing I think we touched on at the beginning, I I think this is a, a really great ensemble movie, even though it's, Mm -hmm. it's honed in on Oliver Tate uh, played by Craig Roberts. I think, uh, the, the actress that plays Jordana Yasmin Page. We've got Sally Hawkins, who is an Oscar nominee. If Free I Oscar, yeah, the winner, right? Oscar. No, she got. No, I think you're right. I think you're right. Shape of Water uh, won Best she, Picture, but she was yeah, she, she was, was she was taught to be a lock, and she was snubbed for someone who will come back to me in a second. But continue. A movie that uh, has not aged as well in my mind as I felt walking out of the theater, but great performance from her. She's good in it. I. Uh, I really like Noah Taylor. He's awesome. I think he's an awesome character actor. He uh, has a scenery chewing role in Peaky Blinders that is turned up to 11 that fits the tone of that 
television series perfectly. And then let's see, did, did I leave anyone out? Uh, the character, the actor that uh, plays Patty, Patty Considine, who I, I don't man. know. I don't know how well known Patty Considine is in the U.S. There are definitely movies. I know there are movies you like that you've seen him in. Now, whether they're at the front of your mind and you recognize them, he he's got a really recognizable face. I'll say that. Um, I'm now seeing that he is in the uh, what's what what's the word they use for that trilogy? Cornetto trilogy. Yeah. But yeah. or maybe it's not this in Shaun is, of the Dead, but he's in two of them. He's in he's in Hot Fuzz. He plays there's two cops who look really alike. And they have they're just hilarious. They have great interactions between the two of them. They play off each other. He's one of them. Right around that time he was in the Born Ultimatum as well. Kind oh, of wow. briefly. So people will know who he is, but he, he is a he's a pretty significant character actor and even kind of indie lead in the uk independent film scene spoiler alert not actually a spoiler but he he's great in this in that he is the last person you would want your mom to get in the back of a van with (laughs) he's got big like twice divorced aunt's new boyfriend at thanksgiving energy but, you know, the Welsh version of that, I think. He's really bringing that to the table. Yeah, he, he really is. Uh, I actually think the first time I came across him, funnily enough, uh, was in the Arctic Monkeys video, Leave Before the Lights Came On. Oh. I don't know if you've seen that video, but um, it's actually, that's a really good video too. I wonder is that how kind of introductions came about. Not that they wouldn't have known who each other were, but... Um, yeah, kind of interesting connections. And even then, like right now, I was going to watch earlier this evening. It's it's out here right now. So Craig Roberts, who plays Oliver Tate in this, he's a director now. And the second movie he's directed has just come out. It is called Eternal Beauty, and it stars Sally Hawkins and David Toulis, who we talked about last week. I'm here for that cast. It's it's getting very good reviews. And his first movie is supposed to called Just Jim. Supposed to be pretty good. And I haven't managed to see it yet. Uh, I remember, I feel like there was a Guardian review at the time that called him the British Xavier Dolan when Just Jim came out. So uh, Craig Roberts has taken his career in an interesting direction. But yeah, that's just like as we speak. Um, like there was a Q&A that I could have I was going to go oh will I go to that vir- virtual Q&A uh, watch that movie and there was a Q&A with him and Sally Hawkins just today so those two still working together still in the news and not really surprising because if we now transition over um, basically all of these pay- people came together to work again in the double even as Richard Iowati got to level up in budget and add some some new faces to his ensemble as such can I mention one more thing before we transition to the double? Go for it. You're, you want to mention Alex Turner? Absolutely. Uh, so Alex Turner wrote all of the original songs for this movie, and I think there were some repurposed Arctic Monkey songs as well or or uh, something of that nature. And Craig Roberts, as a 15-year-old, looks remarkably like Alex Turner. So I, I just imagine old oliver singing these songs back to him as he's looking at the super eight footage of his memory so that's another interesting lens to view this i i really love the original songs in this movie i think the score is great too Mm -hmm. uh next week we'll get to talk about a movie where i love the score as well but alex turner if richard iowati wants to make more movies 
I'm here for more Alex Turner collaboration with the soundtrack because like you, I am a huge fan of the Arctic Monkeys. Uh, I saw them two years ago. And now that we're talking about this in an era where I can't see concerts, I miss that even more. It is one of the better. And I even think among Arctic Monkeys fans, I think there would be a very large uh, proportion of them who aren't necessarily all that familiar with the soundtrack for Submarine because it was such a small movie and because it really wouldn't have come about if it wasn't for the kind of the active collaboration that was going on between the band and Alex Turner specifically and Richard Iwadi at that time. But it is really great. I can't think of many kind of short EP soundtracks, just, you know, original music by one artist for a movie that are quite as good as that. It's not something that happens all that often. You might get one or two songs or you might get lots and they're really bad, but I think these are really good songs. It's, it's uh, a record that I've listened to for years and really liked and it works perfectly just kind of thematically and in terms of tone with the movie too so yeah that's definitely worth mentioning adam favorite arctic monkey song off the top of your head go before we transition oh andrew uh give me yours Uh, (laughs) let me time 505 that's a really good call i love the way it builds and then erupts i i think it's it's i think it's probably something off the first album I think it's it could be a certain romance. It could be viewed from the afternoon. Uh, I love from Ritz to Rubble. It's probably from Ritz to Rubble. Yeah, Ritz to Rubble is an absolute banger. Good talk. Good talk, Adam. I I also I have other more obscure. I didn't want to I didn't want to give you like a B side. I feel like that would make me a real asshole. <laughs> I would have respected it. <laughs> I'll tell you off air a B side that came to mind immediately, and I was like, no, I'm not saying that people. People be like this guy, <laughs> but I'll tell you off air. Sounds good. Okay, let's transition over into the double. Hey, you got a call? Oh, it's not for me. Probably looking guy named Simon. It's me. How long have you been here, son? Just started, eh? Yes, sir. Seven years ago. Yeah, no, the creepy guy's here again. Hi, creepy guy. I'd like to introduce everyone to our newest co-worker. Please welcome James Simon. Have you spoken to the new employee? James? Yeah, sure, a minute. But did you notice anything strange about him? I mean, did he remind you of anyone? Who did you have in mind? What will it be? I'll just have a Coke. A Coke. And you? Scrambled eggs. You don't serve breakfast in the evening. Oh, do you still have eggs here? Yeah. And do you have a frying pan? Yeah. Then give me the damn food. Simon, how come you don't have a girlfriend? I don't know. There's someone I've been thinking about. I have all these things that I want to say to her. I know what it feels like to be lost and lonely and invisible. You have to go after what you want. You really think she's looking at me? Yeah, yeah. All right, now lick your lips. Yeah. What? Show the tongue, but be careful not to look like a lizard. Go. I attract so many weirdos. I've never met anyone like James. What is so unique about him? You're not thinking of killing yourself, are you? No. Should I put him down as a no? Put him down as a maybe. This guy just started. Why can't you work like that? This man is a fraud. Stop following me. He stole my face. This is not me. This is not me, sir! Look at me! 
that's it. That's it. This is Richard Iardi's follow-up. Um, I, I haven't seen budget reported for this and didn't at the time, but I will take a guess that it's considerably more. It looks it. Uh, I think the certainly the two leads who come into the equation would indicate that there was additional budget. This movie, though, just looks incredible. And maybe one thing that just to, to lead into this conversation with, because it equally applies for submarines. Something I really like about both of these movies is just the attention to detail all around. Like, the production design is phenomenal. They both look great in terms of the details without overdoing stuff. The costumes are great. Like, his movies, they don't have a unified kind of feeling or atmosphere, but within each one, like, he really kind of... He does a great job of defining his world without necessarily being like, we're in this place at this time. He just makes it feel real without you needing that. There's a kind of authentic vibe that's created just by the attention to detail around. I mean, that that feeds to things that are kind of non-diegetic, like the score or like the soundtrack too, but also just costume and production design, locations, things like that are really, really well chosen in his movies. In the double in particular, I think that you're right in saying it's more of a feel than a location or even an era because we're almost made to feel like we're in some sort of dystopian past. Almost. We're just in. It's like dystopia is the place we're in. That's that's what I was about to say, because that is very much the feeling. It's just like dystopia. Um, it doesn't matter what year, what particular country we're in dystopia. It honestly feels like. So Jesse Eisenberg's one of his characters, Simon James, it almost feels like a world designed in his mind to torture himself. Does that does that make sense? Sure. It's that's how it feels to me. It's it's so dark. You know what, and just... you know what I thought of? You know what I thought of? There is there's a couple of scenes in particular where everything is going against him. And this is this is a really high compliment, and it isn't something I would have put to it before. Um as in it wasn't just at the forefront of my mind. There are some really Charlie Kaufman-esque scenes in this movie. Oh, yeah. I think we we start off on that note. And, where... and also, particularly with the way Jesse Eisenberg plays them, too. He'd be great in a Charlie Kaufman movie. No, oh, now, now I really want that. Uh, the I, I mean, to really hone in on what you're saying, like a perfect example is we start off with the movie where you're, he's sitting in a subway car um, and someone just comes up to him a stranger we presume and says you're in my spot and he just is confused for a moment and then awkwardly just relents and gives up his seat on the not crowded at all train that guy could have sat anywhere and it's we learn everything we know about this character's self-worth in that one interaction Mm -hmm. and the the kaufman-esque nature of it now that you mentioned that is is very apparent and it's you could see the same thing happening to Nicolas Cage in Adaptation, another not technically a doppelganger movie, but in the same genre, ballpark and in similar themes. Yeah, that re- that reminded me watching that scene earlier of the thing that I brought up when we talked about Blowout. And I, I brought up the De Palma thing about don't just start your movie with like an establishing shot of a place, because that is such a great opening scene in terms of. Like, just how much heavy lifting that does for the character and for everything else that happens in the rest of the movie. There's very little dialogue. You're talking, like, five, six words. 
and it's just gestures. It's some very gentle camera work, and you're like, okay, I've got it. And as the movie progresses, in your head, you're kind of coming back to it and coming back to it, like, oh, yeah, okay, all right. Uh, <laughs> that was made clear from the beginning. I, I think it's a really strong opening, and there's a lot, actually, from the beginning of this movie that I, I really, really respond quite strongly to. I don't know, did you find that that same feeling more generally even building a world is a good way to describe it because the the comment I made about um, it almost feeling like a world designed in his own head to torment himself. Like we get the picture that everybody in his life pretty much hates him or fails to notice him. And like, I feel like in, in our worst moments as human beings, when it deep down in the depths of depression, uh, we can feel that way about ourselves, but it gets laid out tremendously quickly, the scene on the train. And then another recurring bit I'll call it is when he's trying to walk into the building and the guy at the front desk literally does not recognize him every time and makes him go through the hoops of signing in as a visitor. Like, I don't even know. I I don't even know if the guy doesn't recognize him. I think the guy almost certainly recognizes him. I think the guy doesn't care. The guy is into the procedure of it all. He is, I'm here to do my job. You don't have your pass. I, I, that's how I take it more than him actually actively not recognizing him. And the reason the reason why I say that is it is that, that first scene. So he kind of, this, the security guy is such, he writes up like a temporary pass for him. And then Simon, Jesse Eisenberg's character, um, Jesse Eisenberg's character at that point, uh, walks to the barrier and he's standing there waiting to go through and the guy then is again like i need to see your past that's the bit that to me was like oh that guy's just you know very into his job i think the vibe i got was a little bit of that and a little bit of i know i can get away with pushing this guy's buttons sure um so there's several degrees of that and all like all this transitions to just how he gets treated almost every person in the company. I mean, his boss barely knows who he is or how long he's been there or what kind of work he's doing. We've get a woman in the, I guess, printing department who is just furious with him for only wanting one copy of a document. Like we just get this whole view of him being this sad sack down on his luck. Everybody hates me person with, like you said, within the first 20 minutes, like he is the, uh, he's like Charlie Brown. And yeah, very much so. It's made very clear uh, from from Jump Street. Yeah, very, very much so. That's that's a good call and a good way of putting it. I mean, this is it's maybe obvious to a lot of people. This day we said the double. This is based on uh, Dostoevsky's novella, The Double. It is. I haven't read The Double. I love do- doppelganger stories. Generally, I love doppelganger movies. I really should read the double and i feel quite bad about that and i promise everyone i will at some point do that but i from what i know i i know plenty of it and there are elements of this which are pretty i would say pretty uh loyal to the book uh to the novella itself to dostoevsky's story but there there is kind of there's certainly a couple of tweaks that modernize it now i'm wary of that word because like this is not really set in a time or a place i wouldn't say it looks modern there are some semblances of more modern technology as we let off at the start this is just like it's it's set in some sort of dystopia 
You know, it doesn't doesn't exactly matter where or when. It's it's a dystopia. Go on. Did you have something, Andrew? I I did. I wanted to comment more on the dystopia because it's just popped into my mind. But the vague idea of the Colonel, for some reason, yes. that character or detail that we really see very little of and have very little context into what he is or what he does. But for some reason, that little detail alone just brings the dystopia even even more home even if the the setting didn't do it like that's just so bizarre and a little detail that is a is a i don't know like like you said uh, i have also not read the novella so i don't know how true to the story that little detail is but if if that's a decision that the director or screenwriter is making i think it's just like bad attention to details is phenomenal but that little detail detail just really like brings home the whole idea of we're in this dystopia with this confusing company where we're not quite sure what they do and all these weird characters and then this this leader that we know nothing about but everyone's so reverential to it's it's very bizarre and very perfect for the world that he built yeah, and I mean, that just plays into general dystopia, even without having read it. I think like we could point to like the idea of the colonel. There's something 1984-ish about it as well. Like, it's kind of... There's just... If, if you're thinking dystopia, it hits on all the kind of keynotes more generally. Uh, but I do have no doubt that it kind of pretty closely follows the key structure. Iowati is like a massive Dostoevsky fan. That's when he talks about like works that are important to him outside of cinema. It always comes back to Dostoevsky, it seems. So it's not a coincidence that he ended up doing this. You mentioned the screenwriter, and I guess just to talk about how this came about, because it is like, it's not an obvious leap from Submarine, as much as this might have aligned with his interests. Um, Submarine did well, was well received, like in the very kind of relative sense of what success meant for that movie. But I, it wouldn't have been something like where he's got kind of carte blanche and it's like, oh, what you want to do? And he's like, oh, I really wanted to do Dostoevsky's The Double. So this was a project that was in development for quite a while. And it was in development from Avi Corrine. Do you know who Avi Corrine is? Uh, I don't. He's the brother of Harmony Corrine, uh, director of Spring Breakers, for example. Ah. Oh. I probably should have known that. Uh, well, you know now. This is this is what's about. It's all about learning. They teamed up then. It became something when it was time for you know next project for for Richard Iowati. This one was something his producer uh, from Submarine was working with this with Avi Kareen. Iowati's uh, interest then aligned. And it was a case of, okay, this is kind of something that's, it's ongoing, but it's not at a place where it's ready to go. We're having, we're having difficulty in getting it to a place where it's ready to be a movie. And Richard Iwadi came in and kind of took a look at what Avi Green had done and collaborated with him. And they kind of got through that, got to this point, and then it became the next movie he directed. So we've mentioned Jesse Eisenberg already, who does play Simon James and... Also, James Simon. He is the titular double, of course, Jesse Eisenberg. Just to also evoke a Lady Bird-esque reference. Beyond Jesse Eisenberg, we have uh, Maya Wazakowska, I believe. I don't know why I'm unsure of how her name is said, because I feel like I've said it before, but now I'm doubting myself. 
I was just making sure I wasn't the one that said it. So I think I think you've done <laughs> a wonderful job. So far was because you were leaving for me. Yep. She's wonderful, I, but continue. She is incredible in this movie. Like, really. I, this and uh, Park Chan-wook Stoker. Do you ever see Stoker? I did not. That's okay. I'm not going to scold you for that. But Stoker is really good, and she is great in it. And again, just a very different role for her. She's great. She, I'm, I'm interested particularly the age she is now and kind of what the next stage of her career is because... I guess, like, breaking out of being Alice in Alice of Wonderland is not necessarily the easiest thing in the world. Yeah, but, I was I was on. struck by, in doing the research after the fact, how young she was in this role and how just in control of the character she was supposed to be she was. I mean, I, I thought she was... I mean, it's, it's tough to say a performance in this movie is going to be better than Jesse Eisenberg just because of what he's asked to do. But subtly, she's right there and and really fits with the tone of the world. I mean, she, she's a little bit weird, her character. She's charming and attractive, and it's easy to see why he would be infatuated with her. But she's also a little, a little off. There's something that's that's missing there and i think she walks both those lines really nicely yeah i agree completely uh, also kind of in terms of new people cropping up wallace sean plays simon's boss is incredible i mean i i just i'd like wallace sean to be in everything i really enjoy when he pops up in movies it's it's something that's a real trail like in marriage story wallace sean steals a large portion of that movie and there's the same kind of he always has the same kind of energy but it comes here and has a similarly positive effect for me agree wholeheartedly and you know i'm a huge princess bride guy so that's obviously, true that's right i love Sean. and then i mean going beyond that one of the interesting things i mentioned you get kind of a reunion of the submarine cast here but in a really kind of in a way I really like, where they're all there and they all clearly just like and respect uh, Richard Iwadi enough that they're like, yeah, we want to be in your next movie. None of them are playing roles with the exception of Yasmin Page that are really anything, you know? <laughs> that are more than a couple of lines here or there. Uh, Yasmin Page plays, is it his daughter? His granddaughter? Papado Sean? Yeah, Papadopoulos's daughter significant role she's in a trail she gets plenty of lines plenty of screen time um <laughs> sally hawkins is just like there for a scene okay you get a couple of scenes for noah taylor noah taylor's actually pretty not quite ever present but he's there beyond beyond jesse eisenberg and mia wazikowska he's there a lot craig roberts <laughs> craig roberts shows up for two scenes and is amazing he's really good really funny and patty constantine basically shows up as his character from submarine in like one of the videos like that we're in submarine which i really like too it just it's kind of a fun thing particularly like i i know you felt that more but even i did having not watched them for a while i never would have watched them back to back like i did today either but to go from submarine and then see all the same people but to see how they crop up is kind of fun it's it was almost like the sensation of when you have a sitcom that you really like and you're like, oh, all my old friends are back every time you like jump into an episode. And th that's how I felt every time someone would pop up. And I think I messaged you about it. And I was like, oh, it's that guy. 
to branch out our conversation on this film specifically, I, Submarine uh, has a real place in my heart. I think the time I saw it and just kind of it's it's very easy to like. I think this this movie is better than I think this movie is really really good. I was kind of bowled over by just how good it was when I watched it. I think the the score is incredible. Andrew Hewitt's score is really, really good. It was something that on rewatching, I was like, oh yeah, I remember that just being like the key motifs of that being stuck in my head for a long time when I first saw this movie, and that might happen again now. Uh, the sound design beyond that in this movie is really great. Like it kind of it really grounds you in the world. They really play around with it. Again, the attention to detail is there. Um, the lighting and the, the use of color, a lot of this was by necessity. They they shot entirely at night and in like controlled artificial lighting environments because of the technology they were using to actually double Jesse Eisenberg in a lot of the scenes. Uh, but that leads to like a number of sequences where you get these incredibly kind of bold colors come into this world that's often kind of black, brown and gray and it works really nicely. Uh, just all around again just phenomenal decisions but i i think this is the one where it comes across even more but it's there in submarine and for me the thing with ioadi i mean it's easy to think of him and particularly if you do know the kind of figure he is if you have a sense of his kind of persona it's easy to think of okay he's a writer director and you think of the text this guy is an unbelievably dynamic filmmaker the way his movies are shot the way his movies are edited the way just he navigates through his films in an incredible visual sense like there's there's a couple of moments early in this film I, i'm not going to go into spoilers but i'm going to tip enough that you'll know what i'm talking about anyone who has watched will know what i'm talking about or who does watch will then know what i'm talking about the first time we meet craig roberts character in this film right you know where i am i do yep Okay, so the first time we meet Craig Roberts, Craig Roberts and I can't remember the other the other actor, two detectives are talking to Jesse Eisenberg as Simon James. Uh, they're at the scene of a crime, and we get this really nice cutting between different perspectives. And there's one shot at an angle. We get this kind of Dutch angle shot from the ground over that it's not out of place at the moment, but it's just kind of unnecessarily showy. And yet, by the time the film has come all the way around, we get that exact same shot again. It means something... It's much more impactful. It means something much greater. And this, again, just kind of points to the control, the thought that goes into the shot selection, and how he's working through his movie, how he's working through space. Another shot that I love in this film is the... Just after the opening scene that we've already discussed, the train scene. And after that interaction with the stranger where Jesse Eisenberg gets up, he moves to sea. He first spots Hannah, Maya Wasikowska's character, in the next carriage. And it's kind of, her carriage is like swaying, not, I won't say gently, it's swaying pretty rapidly, but we get it in slow motion and the lighting behind her is really kind of soft lit lighting. And it just looks incredible. Like, she looks like something descended from the heavens. It's really well shot. It's really well staged and captured. And there's just that kind of level of filmmaking throughout this movie. And although I knew it was good, although I knew he was a good director, before these rewatches, I don't think I was quite prepared for just how much he's doing. 
in terms of shaping these films as movies. And it's because he is, he's a very much like he is a true kind of fan of movies, um, incredibly knowledgeable. And he's taking that and he's, it's informing what he's doing. Not even necessarily in the kind of, you know, on the nose references that I pointed to earlier and that are certainly really apparent in Submarine, but just in terms of an understanding of how do I make this interesting? And if this is a movie, how do I make it dynamic that it's worthy of telling this story on screen? I think in this case, that's particularly important and has to be the central question when you're sitting there and you're doing it. You're okay. I'm going to make a movie of the double. It's like a seminal work of literature. Why am I doing it? And how am I doing it? Because if there's not a good reason to make it as a movie, if you don't have a clear sense of how you're going to tell that story, it's not worth doing. And there, there are just countless shots, countless scenes in this film where I'm kind of just bowled over by some of the choices. Again, for someone who's only on their second movie, would have been still dealing with a relatively limited budget. I just found it really, really impressive on a rewatch. Yeah, but it comes back to, like you just said, and I said earlier, the bold choices that he makes. There's something that I, I know we're, we're avoiding spoilers here. So there's another thing that jumped out to me. And obviously for me to notice it, it would have to be a lot showier than, than something you might notice. But it goes back to what you said when we first meet Craig Roberts' character and we get the, the shots that will be replicated later mm-hmm in the film there's another component of that uh where i'll say the camera is just very active and there's a lot going on and it it kind of comes up to the climax of the movie and as that was happening i i just thought i haven't quite seen anything like this on screen before and i thought it was a really interesting choice the the first person moment we'll call it um adam right the structure the structure of the movie is it's not entirely unique there are are other films that do something pretty similar to this but i always find when movies do something like that if it actually works and if you if you're not really if you're not overly aware of it at the beginning and you're you don't kind of get lost in it it's when it when it happens then like it's really satisfying and satisfying is the the word that comes to mind. Like there's, there's something about, Oh, that was really clever. And just, you know, that wasn't a waste of my time is part of it. I don't feel like any of this was a waste of my time, but there's also, you just, I come out of it. I'm like, yeah, okay. That was someone who had a command over what they were doing. They really kind of, they taught you and they executed what they needed to do to bring me from that point to this point and have it all work and be satisfying, but also to have it pay off. And there's, I really like when you get a kind of a story that's structured like this, a film that's structured like this, and it actually, it pays off in that way, or it's just executed. Well, like that's not to oversell this. It's not to say like, my God, the ending of the double or anything. It's, it's, it doesn't, it's not a movie that I'd put in those terms, but there's just something that's very, I guess, very controlled about it again. Um, but in the most exciting way possible that something could be controlled, not just kind of sedate. Oh, well, we just managed to navigate it without any kind of bumps along the way. There were risks taken. There were bold choices. And yes, the grip was never kind of lost on, on what the end goal was here. Yeah. I think that's a great way to describe it because 
you know, most times, I'll say most, because I'm sure there are instances where this isn't true. Most times someone sets out to make a movie, they are thoroughly prepared and are doing their best to make something that's well-crafted, but sometimes it just doesn't work. But I think the thing that you can say for both of his films is they really feel like that careful attention was paid to each detail. And But that's not to say that it they were safe with their choices or didn't take any risk. It's it's a weird combination of having two films that feel so professionally made and crafted, but also some that took a little uh, took some risk and were were a little weird. So it's it's really interesting how even though they're two incredibly different movies, they both leave you feeling that sort of sensation at the end. I think it's very close to very close to. I think there's one thing that would stop me from. It's, uh, it's going to be obvious once I say it. There's one film that stopped me from just coming out and making the bold declaration. But I, I think they may not be career best performances for both of the leads, but they are like certainly in both of their top twos. Yeah. Um, I mean... like my, my question, to pull that into a question for you, is have you seen Eisenberg as good as this outside of the social network? Uh, there are three or there are two Eisenberg performances that I think I would put on this level. I don't know that you'll agree with me. Um, one of they're them gonna is be, a, are they going to be in Woody Allen movies? They're not. Um, I I love him in the so, in the Social Network. I think that's one of the the maybe ten best movies of the 2010s. First of all, so uh, I, oh, I, I, I I think I know what you're going to say next. Uh, I really, I, for some reason, this is a movie that I like more than anyone else. And it's the end of the tour. I think he's great in that. Uh, he, he taps into the, uh, a different version of inferiority in that movie. That's less sad and pathetic and more jealous. And I don't think he's as good as he is in this, but I, I think that's my, my number three on that, that ranking. I think the other the other performance below Social Network that I'd put with the double is the Squid and the Whale, Noah Baumbach's movie. I really like the end of the tour. I just, uh, like, a part of me just really does want to be like, oh, the double is Jesse Eisenberg's best performance. Because look at what he's doing. I like, look at the two characters he's playing. And he just... I don't feel like he's an actor that generally... People associate with a wide range. Like, he's very much kind of... Because of the social network being typecast. And he doesn't get to do certainly half of what he gets to do in this movie. Um, And, and it's actually... It's interesting because that's a part that is there in the social network, and if they were to make the sequel to the social network, he may be leaning all on that part, and that's kind of the asshole part. Well, the funny the funny thing about um, the double and the two roles that he's playing is, if you want to get really, like, reductive and just hone in on it that way, he's playing, like, all the male characters from the social network in, like, <laughs> one role. Is There's some Zuckerberg in there. There's, uh, there's some of the Sean Parker, Justin Timberlake kind of thing he's he's doing a lot more than he did in the social network so yeah well uh, it's interesting you say that because i was even one of the things i was thinking of watching it is like i i do think that the movie itself like it, it has weighty 
subject matter and that obviously comes from like again it's like a totemic work of literature but i i think there's an extra relevance like in a 2020 sense of it in terms of its questions of identity and i think certainly in the online age you could kind of you could add a layer of meaning it's not there it's not it's the film is speaking more generally but i think the way that you would have to apply some of the questions about you know what what is what meaning do i have for myself or am i really all that special or why would i be special or you know just general kind of questions of identity i think now are tied up with an added layer i think the internet is going to come into that for 99 percent of the population in some way it's going to feed into that and i think that leads to kind of an interesting when you watch this movie and you think about what it is about what it's saying and how that fits into our current world it's it's interesting that eisenberg is in the lead role here because it could easily feed back to some of the ideas that he has played in his most famous performance of all well adam i mean i think there are too many people to count in this world that are probably simon james in their day-to-day life and james simon in the facebook comment section like mm-hmm. that the <laughs> you're online you have the audacity to say and do everything you wanted to do but it, if you saw someone face to face you might be the timid guy that gets bullied into giving up his seat on the train i mean we've got we've all to an extent got that duality of our brain and the way we view ourselves we have who we are and we have who we wish we could be and the the online world allows us to be that other person without consequence which is a horrible thing <laughs> oh it's terrible it's the ruin of civilization <laughs> but yeah I, looking back at when this came out and where we are now it, it's 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 tough to ignore that that fact overall this exercise you enjoyed it this was worthwhile this was just kind of as i said part of this was what will we do next week and what can we do that will be fun, interesting, something different, but also doesn't give you too much viewing to do? And I already just came to mind as, oh, this is perfect. This this person's got two movies. So did you enjoy the experience of this? Yes, uh, I think it was a, a great exercise, first of all. I mean, you you have such a deeper knowledge of film than I do. So when we dig into something like this, where you're coming at a, at it from a place of, of understanding and I'm coming at it with fresh eyes, I think is a really interesting exercise. And in the future, it, it might lead to the opposite experience where I just don't get something or you don't get something, mm-hmm. which was more likely based on past exchanges, but we don't have to get into that now. It, it's so funny that this is what we happen to choose because uh, Adam, what one thing this podcast has created is beef in, uh, in the in, in the Snyder streets, we now have beef with my brother and frequent guest Jordan Snyder. Uh, earlier in the week, before we recorded the last podcast, he had messaged me. He was, I guess, going through his letterbox. Uh, follow us on Letterbox, by the way, uh, and then you can see our film takes and my one sentence reviews. Yeah, put pressure on Andrew to actually properly use Letterbox. I think I still think it's half hearted. Yeah, it's 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 fifty fifty. But at AC Snyder, are you? Uh, there might be a one six in there. Hold on, I've got it up on my other computer. Yeah, AC Snide sixteen. So I'm eight... I'm Adam McGee eleven. You can find us on Letterbox. Mine's the same as my Twitter. Yes, 
uh, my brother Jordan had mentioned, you know, there are two doppelganger movies that came out, I think, in the same year or within a couple of years of one another, The Double and Enemy. And I clearly had different feelings on those. And so he gave a, a 1.5 star review to The Double and a five star review to Enemy. Uh, Enemy is one of my favorite movies of all time as well. And I also really love The Double. So I, I've got beef with Jordan. I need him to rewatch this because... I think it's a legitimately great movie, and I, we, I think... We talked about Enemy, right? We talked about Enemy. We both love Enemy. Yeah. Enemy is a movie that has no... Uh, this is not... I'm not taking down Enemy. I think Enemy is a better film. I think it's a more talented filmmaker. Part of that may be because of, as we've talked about, like, I he's had two movies, and it's... For as good as these movies are, maybe there's only so much you can do before leveling up, and uh, really getting the chance to do it over and over again and figure out, okay, what are you doing? I, I think Enemy is more tightly constructed. It plays with its premise in a more in a more dramatic science fiction-y way, certainly where that movie ends. I don't think it has as much to say. I think it's, in what it avoids, I don't think it has as much to say. Like, I, I don't think there's as much between those two movies as the reputation and the consensus reputation would suggest. And I I don't have any, like, qualms or question marks as to why that's the case. One is because, like, you who knows a lot of filmmakers and knows a lot about movies had no idea who Richard Iwadi was a week ago when I suggested this, like nearly anyone who's kind of got a passing interest in movies now probably knows who Denny Villeneuve is. Like, and that factors into it, and that certainly brings out a... I'm not not saying it's it's undeserving. Like, we talked about Enemy. We talked about it with, on the Jake Gyllenhaal episode, right? Wasn't it with Jordan Tresky? Um, yep. you, could, you could go back in our archives and find it there. We both really, really love that movie. Uh, but I... I think they're doing different things... They have different goals in mind, different ideas of how they want to get there. But I actually think for all the style in this movie, I've probably talked about that. I think it has more to say in a very concrete way, too. Yeah, my I mean, the way I would describe it in my feelings is that I view it on the same plane as enemy in terms of overall quality. So I think they're like, both great. I, yeah, I Give me I love Doppelganger movies. Give me all of the Doppelganger movies, even the bad ones. I just it's something that I find really interesting. I'm fascinated, particularly by it in the cinematic context. It's really interesting. One other thing that came to my mind there is, do you think on the social network, Jesse Eisenberg was watching Army Hammer play two roles and was just like, yeah, I want to do that. I want to act against myself. That's got to have factored into this in some way, right? Because it's only... It's not, it's not long after. I like to think he called Army. And was I, like, hey, I would buddy. say he did. He had to, right? And be like, yeah. should I do this? Is this just too much? Would you ever do this again? Should I ever do it once? Listen, I'm a big Army Hammer guy in general. Huge fan. Well, it goes back to the thing I think we mentioned on our old podcast where I just have a uh, an inherent need to trust the most handsome man in the room. So it might be a little bit of that, but also I just like his movies, and I think he's got actually a sneaky good filmography with some good performances. Oh, I don't think it's sneaky. I think it's really good. And if he at all contributed to Jesse Eisenberg 
doing this movie, then this is another reason to love Army Hammer. So kudos to you, Army. I'm sure you had a role in this. I guess to wrap this up, because we said we'd talk about it and we haven't yet. And I mean, I don't have anything definitive to say because there is no definitive answer. Uh, Richard Iwadi has never fully kind of explicitly stated what has happened between 2013 and now. I did mention he hosted like a fun 30 minute travel series. I, I, one, I don't know if that's available in the US anywhere or how. Maybe it's on like Prime or something. If, if that's somewhere, it's called Travel Man. Seek it out. It's very enjoyable. It's something that you could just watch. And particularly if you like, you'd get a good sense of his personality and that too. But why he was doing something like that, as opposed to making movies, considering just what these two films are, is is kind of puzzling. But the, the fact is, the double didn't do well at the box office. It made like $2 million worldwide. It did pretty terribly in North America. I think, first and foremost, I think it grossed less than $200,000, which is really surprising to me. I, in North America, Andrew... You you know it you know it well. It's I a do. big place, very big place. I would have thought there was a lot of like Dostoevsky heads, who're <laughs> just like, oh great, we need to go and see this. Let alone people that like within three years of Jesse Eisenberg being in uh, one of the biggest films, if not the biggest film of this century so far, the defining film. Jesse Eisenberg showing up and stuff, and oh, that person, as I mentioned earlier, Brian Wozniakowski in Alice in Wonderland. Like people know who these actors are. Stacked supporting cast. I, I really, I've, I actually don't know who distributed this internationally. They did a bad job. I mean, only pictures. It's a little surprising. Sometimes it really just comes down to the marketing, right? And are you getting the push that you need so that people know this is even a thing? And I mean, clearly it didn't get that. Um, it, look, it was never going to be successful, successful, but I just don't know why this couldn't have made 10 million worldwide. It kind of seems strange, particularly it did. Okay. Internationally it did. Okay. Not great in the UK and overseas markets for what it was. I look, this is still speculation because I don't know that that's what sealed the deal here um, for Richard Iwadi's directing in recent years. I guarantee it didn't help that he got a bigger budget with like known commodity stars and the results weren't that great. Box office wise, that wouldn't have helped. I mean, he has mentioned he has three young children and he just hasn't particularly had the appetite to like go off around the world and be away from them for long stretches of time. That's understandable. Maybe there are plenty of things he's turned down for that reason, and maybe later in his career there'll be there'll be more things to come. I did I said this to you privately, and I, I there's not much of a conversation we can have here because I don't believe you've seen either of the Paddington films, right? I, I have not. One of my one that's a thing I owe you at some point, I feel like. I, I really I not just you, any anyone listening, because I I just know the kind of I know the prejudice that people are gonna have with the idea of this, I want me continue to talk about them as good. There are really well-respected critics who had like Paddington two on like your top 10 of the decade list. And that is not ridiculous by any means. These are really good movies. And like, if you like submarine, Paul King, Richard Iowati collaborator, one hell of a director. He, he directed them, both of them. Um, great performances, just really good. Plus Paddington. I mean, 
I don't know what Paddington, the US, really ever was, has been. Paddington, though, important cultural figure for me. Uh, there's a story to it. I went through this with you before, but Paddington, the movies, really good, like as critically acclaimed as any movies, like just in terms of universal like approval rating. So there's a third Paddington movie coming. Paul King, who directed the first two, is not going to direct it. He has his own uh, Willy Wonka, Charlie, I don't know which one they're going with in the title this time, but he has his own Roald Dahl Chocolate Factory movie coming. Oh, which, God, why? Who asked oh, for no, that? Uh, go watch Paddington 1 and 2 and come back to me, Andrew, because I can't wait to see it. Maybe I'm just mad at Tim Burton. Continue. Well, Tim Burton made a terrible, terrible movie, but that is not... If anything, that's all the more reason why someone should not, you know, should Listen, be hol- open to making a good reimagining of it. That's true. Hologram Gene Wilder. We're getting sidetracked here. My point is, there is currently no director attached to Paddington Tree. I cannot think of a director on the planet who would be a better fit for it than Richard Iowati. I think it could give him a big, big hit. The kind of hit that would then enable him to go on and make more movies of whatever he wants to make. I think this is the this is the dream scenario. Hey, it's a movie his kids would even love. You know, maybe his kids could be on set. Adam, the bear isn't actually there. Maybe they'd be disappointed with that if there's like <laughs> Andy Circus and green screen. I don't know, but the point is. I, I need this to happen. And when you someday just do me the favor of, it's not even a favor to me. You'll just make your life so much better. You'll watch Paddington, you'll watch Paddington 2. And then you'll you'll understand. You'll be like, yeah, I want Richard Iwadi to make a third one of these. And I'm first in line for Paul King's trying the Chocolate Factory. Adam, last week we we literally spoke into existence killing cinema. <laughs> so the least... um, this is the resurrection. Yeah, exactly. The least the universe can do is make this happen for you. Another note, I have just done some digging into Travel Man. Adam, you know I'm a big fan of Somebody Feeds Phil, and I've almost mm-hmm. completely caught up. I was I was way behind on that, so I've, I've almost finished all of those. Uh, I see that on in 2016, in Series 3 of Travel Man, he went to Seville with Rob Delaney. So yes, that, that's something I need in my life for a lot of reasons. Adam, there's a, you know, there's you know, a phenomenal John Hamm episode. John Hamm is amazing. John Hamm, real life John Hamm. This goes back to your Army Hammer thing, I guess. Yep, <laughs> we'll yep. around the room. John Hamm is everything you could want John Hamm to be in real life and more. You, you know, I'm a big Seville guy. You know, I'm a big Rob Delaney guy and you know, I'm a big John Hamm guy. So, uh, prioritization of episodes. I might, watch those before i start from the beginning i mean it just seems like the right thing to do uh adam i saw a meme earlier before we started recording that set was john ham as as don draper with a uh, a whiteboard in the background or like the pieces of paper where he would write his ideas and it just said we kill gunnersaurus and <laughs> i couldn't stop laughing about it but not related to anything, but I felt you Dr. should know. Draper would not have come up with that. We're we're gone off. The, I, we've just really gone off the rails. Uh, <laughs> Gunner Soros making it in here. I don't know if anyone other than us will get that. The, our podcast is a you know it's a broad church though. I, that's what I will say. Um, we've done a Richard Iowati episode that has featured a rant where I very strongly advocate for 
Paddington movies. And then next week, we are going to talk about the work of American independent author Kelly Reichert. And that is quite the... I'm proud of the variety that we bring to our podcast. So next week, we're going to talk about First Cow, the Kelly Reichert movie that if you're into films, you've probably heard about at some point this year. It's without doubt one of the best movies of the year so far. Andrew finally got around to watching it. So we'll talk about that. And we'll also talk about, I'm going to say Old Joy and Meek's Cutoff, but maybe, maybe there'll be, maybe there'll be an extra one there. Maybe there'll be one of those won't be and something else will. But, Kelly Reichert next week. That's what's coming up. So there you go. We've we've actually delivered that you can do your homework ahead of time if you want to listen. Any final thoughts on Richard Ayoade on this episode or any thoughts on looking ahead to next week, Andrew? I'm very excited about next week. I, I, I'll save my opinion on First Cow. That's what we call a tease in the business. Um, Richard Ayoade, Really glad that I was introduced to his films this this week. So thank you for that, Adam. And I I hope he does something again. I hope he makes another movie because he's fantastic. Yeah, me too. That would be that would be great. All right. To make sure you hear our Kelly Riker conversation next week, you should subscribe to us on whatever your podcast platform of choice is. We are basically everywhere. If you find we're not somewhere, let me know and I can work on that. But we're on a lot of platforms. I've had I've had a few podcasts in my day and I've never had one on as many platforms as this one. So it should be wherever you want to get it. You can also follow us on Twitter at Captured on Cell. We have a Facebook page, Captured on Celluloid. We've already given the details. We're both on Letterboxd. Andrew's gonna Andrew's really gonna be diligent. He's now put it out there, so he's gonna get an avatar up on that profile. He's going to start logging everything. You're going to put pressure on him, all five of you listening, uh, to do that. But you can find us both on Letterboxd. And as always, thanks all of you for listening. And we'll be back next week. Thank you, Andrew. Rest in peace, Gunnersaurus. <laughs> <laughs>